You're listening to Deep Dave, a deep dive into the history and cultural significance of the Dave Matthews Band. This is part two of our discussion about the studio album, The Lily White Sessions. And now, it's time for a Deep Dive. So, I'm going to let you take start the next one, because okay. you know I've got a lot to say about this, Charlie. <laughs> so, Captain, um, at this point in listening to the record, I think it's become evident that Matthews has, uh, he's a serious case of the, you know, what hath I wrought, you know, uh, um, and it makes sense that he's written what is a surprisingly sensual song about being the arbiter of his own destiny. Um, I remember uh, about a year ago when it felt like the 2020 election was, uh, was you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, that, that it was his to lose. Uh, my leftist buddy told me the prospect of the country going in a more progressive direction terrified him. Um, on the one hand, uh, he did not want to imagine suffering through another Trump term or a term with any of the other kind of like neo-lib dickheads that were running for the nomination. But, uh, you know, just as frightening uh, to him was the notion that he could look at the country going in a positive direction and feeling like, why am I still so fucking miserable? And, uh, you know, he and I both suffer from uh, chronic depression and anxiety, and I definitely understood what he meant. Um, if tomorrow, like, my student debt was canceled and I had guaranteed health care and was making $40 an hour, I'd, I'd probably still find myself staring out my window in a daze asking myself how everything is a giant nothing, <laughs> you know, you know. Um, and I feel like more than... Oh, any, what are you, some kind of writer or something? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like more than any other song in this sessions, Captain alludes to Matthews having looked at his life and wondering why he doesn't still feel okay. Uh, naturally, being a commercially successful band, it creates incredible pressure to keep moving forward, especially because of you know, the, the changing taste of the public. Uh, but also, you know... You know, Matthews is probably aware of the goodwill DMB has always cultivated with their fans, but this song, I think, illustrates the limits of even that sort of relationship with one's audience. Um, a lyric like, it's for no one but me to say what direction I should turn in now, sounds like both an assertion of authority, but also kind of admitting he's carrying a great burden. Um, I imagine success and celebrity bring freedom, or at least the temptation of freedom, or maybe the illusion of freedom, you know, like, like in, for example, in, in 2000, you know, Matthews probably could have dissolved the band, lived off the residuals, did a reunion tour every couple of years. Uh, that would grind the livelihood of everyone in the enterprise to a halt, you know, not just the band, but the massive crew surrounding their tours and so on. So it's just as likely Matthews was starting to feel trapped, especially after recording the best album of his career. And, um, in that first chorus, you know, he talks about how he'll always be captain, and it starts to sound like a, a, a prison sentence. You know, you can feel the sense of him being lost at sea in this blinding squall. Um, I really like when he talks about his own inner mutiny and his own inner cancer. He, you know, he says he doesn't want anyone's pity. He just wants to be assured that he's going to be okay. And even here, you can feel Matthews really trying to, like, maintain this a sense of humility about his blessings while still putting forth that he is suffering in a new way, a way he never expected to probably. Um, I think most of this misery hangs on the fact that Dave says he's a dreamer and having been very successful, he's probably not sure what is next and that's eating at him. It's leading him to ask why he should want to live long at all. 
you know, the, the, the song is so miserable that it's easy to miss that the, the last lyric where he says, I'll be okay after all. And I think that's important. Uh, Matthews, even when he's down really bad, and I think he's down really bad in this song, it, he's still trying to be the guy he's been on previous records. The, the, you know, the no regrets guy, the seize the day guy, you know, the let's have a good time guy. Uh, and I have mixed feelings about you know, what this song became because it became more of a love song on Busted Stuff. The, the dark sensuality of this tune lends itself better to be about, about you know, escaping your personal struggles by taking solace in a lover, because that's that that's the busted stuff version. At the same time, Captain makes more sense conceptually as being about the heavy head wearing the crown, as you said before. And I'm guess I, I guess I'm just glad that you know we have both versions to you know to sit here and think about. Man, I I do have to say that. Um... Let me let me say the first thing that's in my notes about this is that without even speaking on the technical prowess of the music, Captain, um, I will unabashedly say that this is my favorite Dave Matthews band song. No shit. <laughs> um, not even the busted stuff version of this track, but this version that I've been listening to since 2002, almost going on 20 years. This is my favorite Dave Matthews band song. So I say that to um, say that listening to you talk about it is such a thrill. So I, I'm. <laughs> It, Thank you, that's dude. why I'm so glad to be doing this. It's so fun to hear oh, yeah. you go so deep on something that I love. It was such just like listening to that. I was just like, oh man, this is so great. <laughs> um, if I can remove it from the context of the record, I mean, the context of the record, uh, it's a sad song on a sad album. Okay. Yeah, that's that, basically what I said. Right, I, exactly. I just did it like right. with, a, with too many words. Sure. <laughs> it, it, but like, but removing the context of it, it's mm-hmm. a beautiful fragile, desperate, rock-bottom Dave mm-hmm. Matthews band song. Mm-hmm. Um, if I try to explain why, for whatever reason, this one is the one that I love the most, it's the one that has stood the test of time to me as being a song that still means something to me, still matters, has never lost even a a, a microcosm uh, of its, you know, like a even a... a a small portion of its meaning uh, to me. It's because in in this track, he's it, he's so genuinely connected to what he's feeling that twenty years later, it still feels real. I don't doubt for a second that whatever he's trying to uh, communicate here, he really feels it. He really means it. Um, as an artist, you can only hope to be able to achieve that. We have we have sung his praises for his ability to really genuinely mean the things that he says. Yeah. When he's really angry, he sings a song like Halloween. When he's mm-hmm. when he's particularly in the mood, you get Lover Lay Down or mm-hmm. uh, you know, Say Goodbye. Um and when he's really, really tragically broken, mm-hmm. we get Captain. So um I it, it owns it completely owns the lore of Lily White Sessions. Uh, a, an album too sad to release, an album so different from the rest of his music, that's what Captain is. If you heard Captain and then you heard everything that everybody ever said about the record, you would be like, well, yeah, I totally get it. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful balance of tragedy and conflict. Um, the violin and the horns each own their own space and they offer their own voice. And uh, like I could go on and on about it, but the one thing that I believe truly kind of backs up my own feelings about it is that on the uh, is it Riley Walker 
uh, on the cover album mm-hmm. by Riley Walker, uh, Captain was the least changed song on in his interpretation. And I like to think that it's an homage to the quality of yep. the original composition. Absolutely, yeah. Definitely, definitely a, uh, I don't know what you want to call, just proof concept. Don't fuck with that one. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think Captain, like, there are, there are, you know, there are Dave Matthews songs that everybody loves um, and that are like, everybody knows. And then there are the songs that are kind of uniquely raw and Captain is definitely one of them. When I think of other uniquely raw songs, I think of like Kind Intentions, which is which was just basically a sound check, you know. Uh, that, that that's how most people know it. Um, there's some other ones. Forty one, number forty one, I think is uniquely raw in in its emotional presentation. Um, they it occupies a. I think Dave is really good at kind of, you know, and the band. I I, I feel like I'm talking almost exclusively about Dave in this particular episode, but. Um, the the band the, him and the band together do something really unique when they they occupy a space that is sad or that is angry or that is full of yearning or longing and it still manages to sound very sweet and there is a sweetness to Captain and it it, it, it sits next to that sensuality I also talked about this song feels sensual and 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 not in a not in a silly way you know not in a pornographic way but there is a there is a there is a even in the Lily White version where he's not really talking about yearning for a lover, he is definitely yearning for human contact. It feels like to, to be understood, to have some sort of congress within his mind with another human being, um, and uh, and it, it definitely is. You know, I, I don't. It's definitely not my favorite song, but I definitely when I when I think of what makes DMB's music unique Cap- captain is like one of the out one of the songs there's probably 20 songs i would put on a playlist that says here's dmb the way you don't understand them the way you don't know them you know you know there's no ants marching here there's none of this other stuff you know it's going to be captain it's going to captain's definitely gonna be one of them when i think of it, the last thing that i'll say about the song is um i think that captain and crush are intrinsically linked um and Crush, as I said in, in, the before, in the Before These Crowded Streets episode, is the coolest song that Dave has ever written. It's the one where it's effortless, um, which really personifies the concept of cool. Like it's the one where they're not even, they're, you know, they're not trying to prove anything and yet are so technically gifted at what they're doing that they just achieve that just, level of cool. They just build different. That, that, that's it, right? <laughs> and, and there's so many there's so many things to back it up, including like the kind of like stylized genre music video. It's in black and white. It's they're all in suits. They're kind of playing in a dive bar. It's got that jazzy feel to it. Like it has all the elements of that was my argument for the band knows how to be cool. They're just not that concerned with it. Yeah. And for me, if Crush is the band that's on stage killing it night after night, like, you know, you're at a dive bar, there's a band on stage, and you know that they could have made it if one or two things went their way, but regardless, they're here, they're, they're, they're the kings of this establishment for one night, right? Mm-hmm. If that's Crush, Captain is the guy in the back who's in the bar watching the band, and he's trying to convince himself that he's cool too. Or, you know, I he's just he's giving himself a pep talk as to his own self-worth he's the guy that's all the way in the back being ignored by everybody again 
He's got his maybe his head is down on the table. He's drinking a little bit too much. Nobody really wants to be around him. He's kind of being ignored. And you're right. He's he's yearning for for physical contact, like human mm-hmm. contact. Mm-hmm. In a, in a crowded room, Captain feels alone. Yeah, and absolutely. that's and that's how I feel that Captain and Crush are sort of like linked in a way where one's an outstanding kind of like homage to the concept of cool. And one is a is a isolated kind of like self anxious, um, uncomfortable feeling of being an outcast. At, it sounds like yeah yeah. Um, so that that I don't know why, but I, I feel those two. You know, and, and again, uh, crush number eight on the on before these crowded streets, captain number oh, eight. Oh hey, stay uh, woke. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> somewhere somewhere on a on a dollar bill somewhere. <laughs> circulating through our bank systems that those those two things are written down captain and crush um number nine bartender um what can i say the song rocks there's no question about it this song scratches an itch at live shows that explores the low end the baritone sax blaring the silences behind dave's verses all just rolling into the inevitable jam at the end i mean the band loves playing it the people love hearing it uh, it's another example of how hindsight is really 2020, and for us it's 2021. Mm-hmm. Any record that organically had this track, knowing how its long-lasting favor with fans in the band played out, would have been considered a successful venture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not the Lily White Sessions. And I think right around here, where we've gotten through several songs, which truly would have proven to have been successful, mm-hmm. and they have because they were put on busted stuff and, and went on to live for decades... Um, at this point, you have to start questioning. Maybe it's not about the music, and maybe it's the personnel involved that were the problem. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Th- there is a chance that they were uh, maybe just simply not getting along or something. You know, th- th- there are there are many songs here that are on, and um, this. I, I want to go on the record saying this: if I could live in a reality where the Lily White Sessions was not leaked. I would, um, and because it would just save me a lot of, a lot of uh, hand wringing with my favorite band, uh, or one of or one of my favorite, you know, my top five bands of all time. Uh, this is the only song that makes me truly grateful. The sessions was leaked. Um, the The songs here that made it onto Bustin' Stuff, I think, are by and large improved, but Bartender was not. The busted stuff version is great. I'm not going to say anything like that, you know, that it's bad, but um, it is, did not operate on this version's level at all. Uh, I think Matthews is just completely alive here. Uh, he makes it, he makes it clear that wealth has not yet ruined him, and he expects his health to keep him alive longer than he plans. He, inv- he inadvertently equates himself with Judas. Uh, he says the quiet part out loud at this point about his alcoholism. And his mind is now just completely empty, except for thoughts of the next drink. Uh, the, the bartender as a concept has filled many roles for him by now. You know, God, the, the, the devil, you know, his priest, his therapist, even like a single serving best friend, you know. Um, but now in this state, in this stage, I feel like the bartender is at its final form for Matthews. Uh, I'm reminded of a story my buddy Tim told me about what it means to be a bartender. He, he's a he's a lifelong uh, service industry guy. Uh, and uh, Tim was in Mitchell's Bar here in Castle Hills, which is not far from here. Um, and he was uh, shooting the shit with the barkeep. And, uh, it, you know, it was a time when it wasn't very busy, so it was probably a weekday afternoon or, or a weeknight. 
and um, you know, which is normal for service industry people, you know, to be going out for a beer like when everybody else is at work. And uh, Tim said it felt a little somber in there, and the bartender told him that they had just lost one of their regulars. And Tim said, so what happened? Car crash? Cancer? Uh, the guy just dying of sleep? And the bartender was quiet a moment, and then he said, uh, cirrhosis. The, the story was dark, but we laughed <laughs> when he told it because, you know, Tim said to me, he says, that's when you know you're a real bartender, when the blood is on your hands. And... It's from hearing that story and listening to this song over and over again that it feels like Dave now sees the bartender as an angel of death. And that means the song is not a cry for help, but rather a last will and testament. Uh, th- this, this version to me lacks nothing, even as basically a demo. The lyrics hardly change from session to session. Everyone is completely dialed in. Dave's vocal jam is dazzling to me as anything he's ever done on Seacup. There is no way Carter is not grinning his ass off at the kit, you know, while Leroy, while Leroy plays the best solo of the, in, that he's played in the studio of his career. The, the, the sax overdubs are gorgeous and they're triumphant. And Boyd's drone almost functions like a bagpipe, which is this brilliant way to kind of give the song this like triumphant perseverance, you know. Stefan's in the lower register working with Carter. The, 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 you know, they're creating this like gospel level of swing and if there was any hope for this wearisome sessions, I feel like it was cultivated on this recording. It sounds like a celebration of life, even though it's very much about begging for death. You can feel a sense of fighting for one's, you know, you know, like validity or, 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 or motivation, something, something to keep going. You know, whether it be Dave in relation to himself or maybe the band collectively as they navigate what feels like their first true creative block. Or perhaps the band, you know, for their burdened frontman, you know, anyone who has struggled with self-destruction, with addiction, as I have, uh, will absolutely find solace here that is on par with like bloodletting. You know, there, there's like when I was writing my notes last night, I was getting deeply emotional for a time because for the for the first time in years, um, thinking back on my own struggles, you know, thinking back on how my own struggles mirrored Dave's, and my eyes were welling up, and I'm. <laughs> my eyes are welling up and I'm watching the version of this recording that's on YouTube with the video game that plays. Uh, there are people, I don't know if you, I, I don't think I sent it to you. That's the one I was, that's, that's the one, one that I've been watching watch. and listening to for the last week. <laughs> last week yeah. so, so the guy's playing the video game and I'm sitting here, I'm getting all emotional, you know, and uh, you know, we could have, the fact that we could have just as easily never heard this song in this state, it makes me terrified in a way in the same way you might look at a lover that has changed your life and you understand that one false move could have resulted in you and them like never meeting. It's a lining up of circumstances that makes one give at least some consideration to the concept of divine intervention. That said, if I never got to hurt it, if, if, if I could live in the alternate timeline where this was not leaked, I think I'd actually prefer that. That's Ooh. it. But that said, this song is... Fucking good. Oof. Yeah. And, and um, it, you know, so you said it. What was the list again? You said that the bartender was the oh. pri- the priest. Yeah, we said, what did I say? Priest, therapist, uh, single-serving best friend, uh, devil, God. And, and, right. And, and but, but now he actually saw the bartender as the executioner. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah the, 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 the one who's going to greet him and take him to the other side. 
Man, uh, and, and the the deep well of bartender, dude. Uh, it's as deep as the as the notes that like Leroy's playing on the saxophone. Just, mm-hmm. just it's like it's like laying the groundwork for the the exploration of the darkest parts. Man, that I I don't know. I bartender bartender goes heavy for sure. The song rocks. Well, in, in, in light of what I was, you know, when I was jotting down last night, I feel like it makes sense that they opened the show uh, with this song on the, on the day of Leroy's death. Like, it feels like, God. yeah, it feels like the, this was the one, the one that is about dying, but is, but is, but ends up being a, ends up being a New Orleans style funeral, you know, like where we're, we're going to party, man. It's going to be like an Irish wake. It's going to, you know. Like, like if we're gonna cry, it's gonna be because we're grinning. Yeah, you know, we're we're gonna have a good time about it. Oh man. Okay, so getting close to the end here. Um, mm-hmm. Track number ten, Monkey Man. Um, I can't say that this song does a lot for me. Uh, another track where Dave's alluding to the sort of base nature of humans by comparing us to animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I'm really wondering, like, is he looking at himself at this point? Uh, you know, it's like, who is he pointing his blurry-eyed musings at <laughs> at this point, you know? Um, again, I, I don't have much to say about the song. I mean, it, it's it's there. It's it's kind of similar to the Big Eyed Fish themes mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, you know, conceptually, so on the flip side, I think this song is pretty successful. Um, I think it might be one of Matthew's most left songs because it gets at how surviving in America is like this blood sport. Um, and he touches on a lot of important elements of capitalism, you know, like, uh, the sarcastic way he says the lucky one gets it all as if to say the game is rigged. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the difficulty in deceiving himself that everything is fine, whether he's talking about his career or like say global, you know, global capitalism's impact on the environment or the way that, you know, the momentum, the way that momentum must have momentum when it comes to growth. Um, I love when he says, uh, dig deeper down till it's down in the ground, it's found, used up, and then thrown out. You know, the, the way he's not, he's not just worried about what he's going to tell his kids. He's, he's kind of worried about answering to six generations in his bloodline from now. The, the scale of worry scales with the scale of industry he keeps referencing. Uh, I love when he equates the gray, gray with the color of bliss. It makes me think of a world kind of sapped of color in the name of profit. Um, and then he says, I'm worried for myself in this. You know, he really does kind of cover all aspects of being class conscious and successful in America. You know, you know, even if you're just, even if your success is not like millions and millions of dollars, you're just living in the suburbs, you know. Uh, my impression of this song is that it was always extremely unfinished, though. And, you know, um, well, excuse me, my, my impression of the song was that it was always extremely unfinished sounding. But then going back to it, I'm discovering that it actually isn't. You know, the lyrics are nearly there. I think he should cut the part out where he says, don't want to die like a little dog, <laughs> you know. Uh, but the band sounds, to me, they sound tight. They sound engaged. I love the guitar lick. It's it's cool and it's kind of weird. And, you know, Roy is in the back finding all sorts of space to feel. You know, Phil, I I don't hear any violin, but I, it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, I'm, I'm gathering what has, quit, what has kept this song from even ha- from from even having like a live debut is just the chorus section of the tune doesn't have any words. Uh, maybe there was intent to put lyrics there, or maybe not. Either way, there's like this negative space just kind of all over that groove, you know. And it's a wide swath of it. So 
I understand why this extremely grim-sounding track with a somewhat empty arrangement might never have been road-tested. So you're saying um, they've never played this song? Yeah, they've never played it. Yeah, for for all of its energy, it it's and for all of its energy, it's it's of course it's grim. You know, the outro about the ice melting before we can cross, uh, you know, the, the ocean or or the, the the pond, I guess. The feeling of cold closing in while the sun is melting glaciers, it makes me think of like, you know, in in every disaster movie you have, whether it's zombies or it's like an environmental catastrophe. There's always uh, there's almost always a, the symbolism of people taking their own life before the catastrophe gets to them. And so, like, you know, he talks about, like, the, the you know, the, the, the cold is closing in while the sun is melting glaciers. It makes you think of, like, m- maybe there's water creeping up, you know, under the door. You know, that, that's the ocean water, and people are taking their own lives before they drown, you know. Um, and and the, Matthews would eventually find a way to kind of discuss these same issues without getting, like, like uh, canceled by the label, <laughs> you know, on, on, on the song Dive In. You know, um, but that said, the way he delivers those ideas here is 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 good. It's not preachy in the way it is on Dive In. Dive In is a great song, but it feels kind of preachy. You know, um, it, to me, this song it feels like him kind of realizing in real time that he and everybody else is on borrowed time, and rather than pointing fingers, he's kind of panicking. You know, and grieving. Um, and and so you know, I, I I lament the fact that this song didn't become more. It feels a lot like Dreamy Tree. It reminds me of Dreamy Tree, but it also because Dreamy Tree is, is rhythmic and meditative, uh, and got a real groove to it. But you know the, the themes are closer to like too much. You know it has some of the driving rhythms and the syncopation and the intensity of too much. Um, and so th- those two elements kind of coming together, I, I didn't realize I wanted that. Um, and uh, you know there are other songs in the in the catalog that uh, you know they reminds you of like uh, Kill the King or. Or little thing, or uh, deed is done. These other kinds of intense, you know, meditative tunes that that just, uh, of course, haven't, you know, their 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 lives have been cut short. Yeah, and um, uh, at, at Dave Dave is a fully realized human being who has the outlet to express so many different thoughts and emotions, and clearly, particularly this time in his life, was he was being. Um, extremely prolific in regard to just like searching all the the nooks and crannies of how he was feeling so monkey man kind of got squeezed out um it it is interesting to me again we reference this idea that he's like the quote-unquote everyman and yet Mm -hmm. the way that he looks at himself is even in that same line of thinking where he's constantly referring to himself as like a monkey Mm mm-hmm um, it, it seems like that's a really kind of favorited uh, imagery that he pulls on to discuss himself or just like the concept of man in general, right? Like, again, um, kind of removed and just sort of looking down and being like, oh, look at these silly little monkeys. Like, mm-hmm. it's not the first time that he's gone that route. It, it seems to be a pretty like recurring theme. Yeah, he's trying to enforce, you know, a lot of humility, you know, on himself. And I think it's mostly on himself, but he's also doing it on other, on other people. Sure. He wants a little bit of judgment, a little bit, yeah, yeah, a little bit of judgment. But it's playful, and that's probably by design. He doesn't want to, you know. He's Dave is a fun guy, you know. <laughs> like, like, like if if I was going to go drinking with anybody, it'd be either him 
Or get this, it'd be Connor O'Burst. I actually really want to go drinking with Connor O'Burst. Oh God! Yeah, yeah, I know that'll be that'll be a time. Oh God! But 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 I Just feel like make sure there's other people. around. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. Make sure there's. We're gonna need two DDs. No, no, and, and, and like let me let me say this as as a as a huge fan of Bright Eyes from the um, uh, lifted to Casadega mm-hmm. period of, of oh, his writing. Yeah, that's great. Like everything in between, I think it was just like four or five perfect albums. Mm-hmm. Um, Connor O'Burst would probably have that. That'd be a hell of a day to get to drink some whiskey and like talk to him and see who he was and the fights that he was fighting in the early two thousands against George Bush, um, in a much less politically charged time. In a time where like because of nine eleven, everyone was so like. Uh, passionately patriotic and mm-hmm. it, it was a crime so to speak to like mm-hmm. speak out against our president uh, but so few acts were doing it but you know Connor Oberst was one of them and he the man used to go to play festivals and he would just go out by himself with his guitar and he would sing these kind of like anti-war anti-presidential songs That's he even great. famously he released a free single on iTunes called When the President Talks to God it's a great song. Yeah, it's a great song. Um, way before its time. As political as anything Bob Dylan would have done, as challenging as anything that would have been done in the 60s, uh, you know, when they were really like calling it at the establishment. Mm-hmm. Um, Connor had a huge platform and used it to, I think, kind of like explore a territory that, I mean, shit, like everybody, everybody is is doing it now calling out to challenge mm-hmm. we have all got twitter so this was before everyone had twitter <sighs> this is this before uh, this before the era of the woke scold yeah and, and but the, but connor was one of the original woke scholars or scold, scolders <laughs> scolders <laughs> um before everyone had twitter he mm-hmm. found itunes and gave away a free song where he uh you know really called the president to task there and it was quite controversial so you know i it's great while I can't question that it might be a little intense to go drinking with him, um, I, I would also put my hat in the ring to have that experience. <laughs> um, so track number 11, uh, Kit Kat Jam. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> so dis- just, just, just so disappointed in, in, in the last 20 seconds of my life. Everything was good between, you know, we got to the Conroe burst stuff. We we're all good. And then you made that noise. So hold on here. The first ever fully instrumental song on a Dave record, right? A bold move for a band who are three platinum records deep and becoming a pop culture crossover mainstay. I mean, really try to put into context here, like what it meant to put an instrumental song on a record at this stage of their, of their lives. So my, all we can do is speculate, okay? And here's, here's my speculation, and I'm going to pose and pitch a bunch of questions, and Adam, please, you know, if any of these strike you, try to answer them. Liam. Um, is it possible that this song came from a growing frustration uh, from the musicians involved at how little they had to do? Could the band have been seeking something meatier and more aggressive? Was it intended to offer balance? Imagine a song on the record with no Dave present. It's fun to speculate, obviously, but seeing how every day and then some devil would both be born of the line being drawn between singer and band mm-hmm. is Kit Kat Jam the first manifestation? That's a great question. Yeah, you know, well, you got to remember, is it 34 that was, that was instrumental back in the day? Although they would sometimes play 34 with words. 
but uh, I seem to recall thirty four was y- words. Y- yeah, um, you know, well, so the the, the Lily White edition that I have or that I was looking at definitely features Dave singing, but of course it's like a mess. And like if you Google lyrics, it's just literally word salad. Uh, I've I've uh, it's, the fact that you pinpointed it there as kind of being this this interesting uh, this Robert Frost esque intersection where you know where where um, things maybe started to divide that makes a lot of sense. Kit Kat Kit Kat Jam makes sense as a song that that injects levity into a sessions that is of course you know gloomy. Um, but I've always I've just always kind of hated this song a little bit. Uh, the lyrics are gibberish. Uh, the the music feels like an interlude that went too long. Um, I'm sure I wouldn't feel that way if you know Dave knuckled down and made it a song, you know, uh, especially because it does bring the levity I just talked about. Uh, I imagine I gather Lily White could have done like a couple of different things with this song if they had stayed committed to it together. Like it would it would have become a brief interlude, or it wouldn't become a or it would have become a showcase for everyone soloing. So absent Dave, right? Um, you know, or he would have made Dave, you know, just like square block some lyrics into this round hole here, you know, and then leave the rest to like studio magic of some, you know, of some, you know, of some sort, kind of like a bizarro, you know, happy version of Halloween. Um, but uh, I kind of hate this song. And, and I mean, it's fun. It's actually a lot of fun. It's got a badass groove, but like, it just feels like a like like here, it feels like a mess. It feels like Dave doesn't know what he's doing, or has no idea what he's doing. And of course, they're in the drafting stage, so it's not like it has to be complete. But then what do they do when they release it on Busted Stuff? It's completely instrumental. And I'm like, why am I listening to this fucking commercial this late in the album? Like, uh, it was one of the first times where I started to have kind of this experience with Dave Matthews' band where like, I like the record overall, but then there's one song that just kind of pokes me in the eye. Um, and Kit Kat Jam was the beginning of that for me. It's interesting. Uh, again, speaking purely from speculation, um, it feels like if Carter had any presence or clout or say-so in the way that the sessions were going, this appeared on the record because he was like, yo, we got to do something that fucking feels real. We got to do something that feels right. It's got the same kind... It's got a manic energy to it almost mm-hmm. where the band is almost like... It's almost like they're flexing in a way, kind of being mm-hmm. like, "Hey, remember what we can do? Yeah, um, remember what we're the best at in the world." A bit like Stay on Before These Crowded Streets, but like on Before These Crowded Streets, Stay was there to remind you that they were the same old band, even though they were going in all these new, exciting directions. Here, it would almost serve the purpose of reminding you, "Hey." we know we put together this record that's miserable, you know, (laughs) even though it is good, but it's sad. But guess what? We're still the funky guys. Yeah. You know, that was really my take on it. And, um, who's to say that it wasn't just a a warm up session that they tracked while Dave wasn't even at the studio. And all of my speculation about, you know, they, they purposefully chose to do something that didn't have him on it. And thus began the great chasm between like band and man. Mm-hmm. Um, that could be completely coming from left field, but mm-hmm. on record, it exists as a moment where Dave is largely absent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that relationship would only grow more strained over the next several years and albums 
And, um, you know, I, I think it's worth just kind of mentioning the parallels there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, D- Dave went off into his own orbit, you know, in, in 03, you had Some Devil, um, and then that tour with Dave and Friends, uh, stand up, you know, definitely them working together and feeling creative, rejuvenate, creatively rejuvenated at the expense of everyone else on the planet. <laughs> Uh, and oh, then in no. two, th- <laughs> no, and, uh, no, no, oh my God! And so, then, oh God. And, and we'll, get, in, we'll get there. We'll, and get there. The, well, and then the only other thing I'm going to add is that in 2007, Dave wrote and recorded his own song, and then even shot the video for it, the song AE, which is excellent. It's, to me, that's his most Peter Gabriel-esque song, but it's a song he did entirely on his own and released on his own. They played it live with the band, of course. But it was definitely evident that for a time he really wanted to just kind of like do things by himself, um, and it, it was it feels like um, the death of Leroy like pulled everybody back into the same orbit again, and perhaps what you're talking about began right here on the song. I know that we're pretty close. I mean, we got one track left before we get to our mm-hmm. final thoughts on the record, but just just since we're here, we might as well explore it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it has been said, and I and it might even have been by Dave himself who said that right before Leroy passed, the band was as close as they've ever been to breaking that's up. That's right. That's right. Um, and those that that type of thing is a gradual, um, you know, it, it's it, it it comes over time. It's just every day is just a little bit of a push, a little bit more of a divide between the two, hmm. and somewhere in the before these crowded streets and or lily white sessions um that crack formed the one that would almost tear this band apart so uh it it it's fun to speculate was kit kat jam the the first sign of you know who's to say Mm -hmm. but hey it's our podcast and we get to explore every avenue that's right (laughs) so let's take this bad boy home uh the last track raven Mm-hmm. I think the most interesting thing about this track, well, there's two things I think are interesting about it. One, the most interesting thing about the track is that the hook is actually the music. Like that, that is the hook. That's the thing that is most recognizable about this song. Um, it's an interesting track to close on. And again, we can't even be sure that this is the final set list or was mm-hmm. it the intended uh, track listing uh, of this proposed album, but the the words uh one hand is open and the other one holds the gun i mean like those that line alone is to end the the album with that imagery um that is deeply i almost want to say disturbing in a way i mean but it, but it's right in par with everything we've kind of been building up to with all of the explorations of sadness and and the sort of like despair that dave is exploring lyrically one hand is open and the other hand holds the gun. He's really one decision away. Maybe he's talking about himself. Maybe he's just exploring the sort of like fragility of, of existence in general. But he's really banking and kind of like digging deeper into the fr- like just the kind of like temporary place we all find ourselves in here on like life is so temporary. We're all one choice away from ending it. And, and that's a really dark that's a dark way to end a record. Yeah, um, I feel like after after Bartender, no um, no song in the sessions made an argument for them. I'm sorry, not Bartender. I don't know what other song I meant, but no song in the sessions here made an argument for them returning to these songs than uh, Raven. 
because the lyrics are just so incoherent uh, and they kind of force this oafish arrangement to kind of carry the presentation. And, um, but the final cut of this song becomes this interesting meditation on like two generations trying to reconcile their differences in perspective and how futile it feels to see things in another person's shoes sometimes. Um, the, the music is all the better for it. It, it, it. Musically, it ends up kind of feeling like this like younger sibling of Jimmy thing. And uh, um, the, the importance of like perspective kind of circles back to this album's narrative. You know, uh, Math, Matthew's compared the experience to like working on a painting and liking it, but needing a break from it. You know, and then the next thing he knows, it's in a gallery, and he's expected to kind of answer for it. And his only defense is it's not done. You know, um, it creates a precarious situation for everyone involved. He doesn't want to be mad at the fans, and and actually that goes for the, the band as well. Uh, they don't want to be mad at the fans for wanting to hear the music, but he and the band still feel immensely violated for this for this immensely difficult sessions becoming public knowledge. Moreover, there are numerous fans for who this is the best or nearly the best music DMB ever recorded. They also feel that Busted Stuff was inferior by comparison, and that this was the album DMB wanted us to hear. You know, or that was the that was the album that DMB wanted us to hear. So. We will never know how people really would have felt about Busted Stuff without the Lily White Sessions to compare to, a reality that I'm sure the band had difficulty accepting. Um, so, you know, Raven kind of, you know, not here, but eventually on Busted Stuff, and I guess, I'll, I guess we'll, I'll get deeper into it when we get there, but it definitely kind of summarizes, becomes a summation of the, the, the narrative here of these two kind of parties that are having trouble reconciling themselves um i'm glad that they went back and were able to do something with this track um because here okay when whenever it starts up i'm kind of like ah, I, usually usually when i'm listening to this record after monkey man i usually turn it off because i don't want to hear um kit kat jam and i know raven is just better on busted stuff <laughs> so there's that okay well with that said we have finally come to the end of what we have to go off of as the um, the uh, package that is the Lily White Sessions. Yep. And I'll get into my final thoughts. Uh, I've got a few, so strap in here. Um, <laughs> the lore and the mythos of this record speaks for itself, right? It's been explored to death, given a second life by the band, literally paid for twice by the label to record and then eventually release it. Um, it's an interesting testament to the record label industry itself, first of all. For all the music that's been released in the last 70 years, thinking back to the 50s, it's interesting to see how few times labels ever really get it right. What we have been trained to see as the tastemakers and gatekeepers of America's culture have always just amounted to a group of individuals guessing at what works and what doesn't. Um, and, and banking on promotion to sure. drive things. Yeah. So, and so here's the record that under a hypercritical eye of the fans band and label in 2000 seemingly didn't work, and yet time would prove completely otherwise. Uh, Dave Banger's like Grace Street and Bartender, Bigger Than Life Works, like Grace is Gone. All of these things are elements of a record that 99.9% .9 of bands would probably kill to have in their back pocket. And yet the band walked away from it. And like most things left unresolved, that makes the music and the story behind the Lily White Sessions so much better. I can only think of a few instances, uh, Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, Ryan Adams' Love is Hell. Mm -hmm. 
where a band had a record shelved by a label, released it anyway, and the music was received so well that the label would eventually have to admit they were wrong. Yep. Lily White Sessions joined those ranks, a testament to time honoring the skill and ability of this talented group of guys. When the heat of whatever they felt eventually died down, all that was left were still Dave Matthews Band songs. They were technically efficient, they were catchy, and downright fun at times. To speak on the effects of this would have to speak on the effect that this would have on the band itself, as previously touched upon, the chasm between band and singer started here, undoubtedly. Dave would famously jump into the next studio session and track all the songs without the band, which then led to ultimately releasing a Grammy award-winning solo album, Sun Devil. Mm-hmm. And in the future, we will have to explore how those choices would affect everyone involved. You know, so so in this session, you know, or in this album, you know, since we're calling it an album, every track that kicks ass, uh, there's another track that just feels alarmingly incomplete. And uh, Carter uh, told Carson Daly uh, in this interview I was writing, he says, these songs were ideas, and it pissed us off. Um, all of the, almost all of the lyrics went through significant revision. Um, I'm reminded of a Rolling Stone article I read in the early 2000s that was actually about Jay-Z. Uh, he would go in the studio, he'd write lyrics off the cuff. Much of what he like much of what he put on the tape was not written down, and much of it was memorized immediately. Uh, few, few musicians possess that sort of ability to just kind of lay things down. D and B are almost the exact opposite. I'm not gonna tell you that they can't improvise well, you know, that they can't think on their feet because that's absolutely not true. They're brilliant at that. But uh, they generally put songs through these long periods of incubation, and they are generous in letting us see the process at live shows. So the way these sessions went indicates that going in with few musical ideas already sketched out, it just simply isn't natural for them, or at least not in this point in their career. They certainly pulled it off with Before These Crowded Streets, but I don't think they were successful with the cold approach again until 2009. The totality of this album is remarkably grim given that even the upbeat and positive parts of it seem to be the work of someone smiling through the pain. And obviously, it would make sense for this darker shift to come from another band, but DMB spent so much of the 90s writing music about love, seizing the day, having no regrets, partying, generally just kind of being a cool band that you could also play around your mom. And so it's no wonder that the label wanted to shelve it, even though they were wrong, like you said. It was a work with the potential to destroy the band's brand, and in this way, you know, the leak may have been a good thing, ultimately. It proved to DMB's benefactors that, no, these sessions were worth seeing through. Fans loved and appreciated this music, regardless of the darkness of the subject matter. Uh, in fact, they probably welcomed it because, again, it was new territory. Um, that said, the album in this state is not as good as people say it is. I think what drives most people's enjoyment of this record is the voyeurism, the narrative arc, the lack of mastering and polish, the, these tracks are basically glorified demos, which inadvertently make the album sound darker and more mysterious than it really is. Anyone who thinks this is a final version of the Lily White Sessions wouldn't be, I mean, it, like, they're kidding themselves. Like, a, a final version of this with Steve Lily White, you know, on the decks, it would be brighter, it would be clearer, it'd be more colorful, it'd be way more balanced, um, and, 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 and it would not have it would not have elicited the same feelings that, the, that this person is hearing here, you know, that what people are feeling here. Um, 
And so I already said it you know, before, but I think it bears repeating. Because this album was leaked, we will never know how people really feel about busted stuff. Uh, too true. Too true. Um, we could probably go another hour on this record <laughs> and really just the kind of effects that time and mystery have on works of art. It, it makes it so much more fun. It makes it so much more favorable to... It's so much easier to give um, favor to Lily White Sessions uh, when there's no final product to to hang our hat on, right? Because uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's all potential. And yeah. potential is the most romantic thing in the world. Because before you're actually in, like you know confronted by the final product, you get to imagine that something could actually be perfect, and you know, and, and potential too often is an excuse for w- what actually happened. Like everybody knows somebody who always has a bunch of cool ideas for whatever, whether it's starting a business or a story or whatever, and all they do becoming is becoming a DJ. Yeah, right. Starting a podcast about <laughs> yeah. one band. See, so, but we're different than those guys because yeah. we're actually doing it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like the guy who always runs his we're, mouth. We're built different, baby. Yeah. <laughs> the, the guy who always runs his mouth about, about what he could do or what he'd like to do and how he's more concerned with the fact that he has great ideas, but he's not doing the legwork. And um, it's easy to fall in love with the potential of something, but really it's important to engage with what it really is anybody who looks at this record and says and says this is better than busted stuff or this is the ideal thing or this is their best work are not really understanding something very fundamental about this it's that it was never meant to be perceived as such it was it, this was like one day at the office you know um i mean it's not exactly one day at the office but it is definitely it was not the project it was not the product of a long term you know uh uh, uh uh, effort, you know, collective effort made towards this singular expression, like what we got with busted stuff. Um, this was a snapshot of people in a very difficult place, and um, I, I, everyone who thinks this is the best shit they ever did needs to like. I just want to, I want to shake them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but and and um, I think you're 100 percent correct, and and yet underneath that reality was the, the 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 bones of the songs were good because this mm-hmm. was the band it's just at its best technically mm-hmm. and you got to imagine the the great contrast between pushing yourself to be the best of something is that you're eventually pushing everything else away right mm-hmm. so if the band at this point has spent the better part of maybe like a decade obsessively performing together they're going to be the best professionally while at their lowest personally. That, those two things are going to hit right at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's inevitable. It's a numbers game almost. It, it's a numbers game. And we got to number four before that, that the weight of it just became too much. And so the reason that busted stuff exists is because the Lily White sessions, I, uh, you know, uh, fundamentally, were so good. Mm-hmm. Um, busted stuff and Lily White can't, they can't exist outside of each other. It, do, it doesn't. It doesn't happen. Like they. They are. One exists because of the other. You know. And Lily White Sessions doesn't exist without Busted Stuff being that sort of like proof that the fundamentals and the bones of the tracks were good enough to again be released, but like at the quality that the band was comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. So the last thing that I want to ask. Let's explore. This is the last 
for a long, long time, this is the last work that Lily White does with the band. The mm-hmm. fifth, or, or whatever, the fifth Beatle of the Dave Matthews Band mm-hmm. removed. Um, what the way I see it, and, and you know, again, purely speculation, when a basketball team or a football team or whoever, when there's trouble with the star player, it's almost it's almost routine to fire the coach first mm-hmm. because you you're the the product is the player in this sense the product is dave and if dave is a problem it's not that strange to think the first thing you do is try to keep him happy mm-hmm. and you fire the head coach of you know like you're going to fire the coach before you reprimand uh james harden or mm-hmm. lebron right mm-hmm. how many how many head coaches has lebron had a lot yeah and I'm curious what your take on that is where, like, do you think it's possible that Lily White possibly had to simply, by the nature of the game, take the brunt of the reality of what was setting in here and be fired and go down, like, kind of historically as um, possibly being the reason that these sessions weren't playing out the way that the band was happy with? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I, I definitely, when I think about... My perception of the way this was going, actually, I'm imagining Steve Lily White in the back while the band is struggling to kind of keep it together. But the truth is, is that it very well could have been the fact that, like, you know, Steve Lily White is a is a demanding producer. He's he's he gets results. He's incredibly meticulous, and it became evident that the more he worked with Dave, the more he was the the more he worked with D and B, the more he was going to kind of like. Um, his stamp was going to grow bigger and bigger on the project. Um, and it was to the band's benefit going from under the table and dreaming to crash to before these crowded streets. Um, you know, all good things must come to an end though. And uh, maybe it was a situation where the band, especially the hyper democratic band, this band that's always been hyper or maybe not democratic, but communal, you know, has always kind of, they they both need a leader, and yet at the same time, there's probably a delicate balance. If a leader leads on them too much, it's probably going to be a problem. Um, and uh, they they definitely reached a point where the guy who helped get the best out of them was no longer going to work with them. And it's obvious they paid a price for it. Like Dave went and recorded a solo album that was pretty fucking good, and it was independent of everybody else. So which so that definitely illustrated that like when he's in charge of a project, um, he can make something happen, you know. And then busted stuff, you know, was pretty solid. Like I like that album a lot. Um, but then when they went and found somebody that they liked working with, it was Mark Batson, you know, who I've never heard of in any other context. Like I know he's done, I know he's worked with like Beyonce and stuff like that or whatever. But like. To this day, when I watch him in the studio with the band, I'm like, who is this guy? I don't like him. Every, everything about his whole vibe is off. And then he gets this band writing songs like Dream Girl and Stand Up and Everybody Wake Up and, you know, just awful songs. And, um, <laughs> you, you know, like th- these guys paid for their decisions. You know, they, they, they ended up going on a journey um, about about uh, about what it means to... Uh, find themselves, you know, uh, creatively. Uh, when they when they finally got to um, when they finally got to Big Whiskey, it was definitely the the feeling was like, okay, 
we know how to be a band and work with a leader and also find this comfort zone where we can still make great music, you know, and do our thing. And then the beautiful thing was is that Steve Lee White came back into the fold. So I think what matters to me is the fact that like Steve Lee White could come back and it wasn't a fucking disaster, <laughs> you know, because every time somebody tries to, you know, like every time a band tries to go back to the well, you know, you know, like like if DJ Shadow were to say, I'm releasing, introducing part two, you know, or if Eminem, I think, didn't Eminem have a sequel to the Marshall Mathers LP? Like, like you know that that means something bad is going to happen, that it's going to be shit. And um, I, I would argue that of his later stage of his career, mm-hmm. the Marshall Mathers LP2 was not, not as tragic mm-hmm. as, say, the one he did with Rick Rubin. Mm-hmm. Um, an album to this day that I've never been able to make it through. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I've tried. Okay, I, yeah, yeah. So, but 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 my point is, is that they they eventually came back to Lily White, and not only was it good, but it was also not like the old days. It was really cool, it, you know, and it was a thing that just like collective sigh of relief. And I, I think what matters most to me is that they found a way to make it back to this guy, who helped really build their career in the early years. And they did something all together again. And it also made it so that they did it in such a way where it was not like, okay, we have to stick with them because they also did Come Tomorrow, another album that does not suck. So, Well yeah. said. Um, okay, so with that, with all of that, we have come to the end of the discussion of the Lily White Sessions. And coming up next, it's not everyone's favorite, but it is a favorite to talk about we're going all in on every day. Hell yes. Hell yes. <laughs> um, as always, we're the Deep Dive Guys. I'm Nick. And I'm Adam. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Good night. Are you looking for conversation that is both obsessively relevant and culturally stimulating? Then look for Deep Dive Guys on any social media platform. That's at Deep Dive Guys. You keep listening. We'll keep talking.